0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello, Adi Ayngar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have a special guest. And we actually had a technical difficulty, so I forgot how to pronounce her name. Uh, Francesco Cesarini, I think it was. So Francesco.
1: Why don't Hold you on, turn? Sasha. Hold on.
0: <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, Francesco, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what we are probably going to talk about today?
1: Hi. So, I'm Francesco. I'm the founder and technical director of Erlang Solutions. So, I've been working with the Erlang ecosystem for the last, I'd say, 25 years, probably even longer. It's 28 years now. And I, uh, yeah, I started as an intern at the Computer Science Lab with the inventors of Erlang. I work on the team which released the first version of OTP, so the R1 release of OTP, back in uh, 1996. I co authored uh, two of the O'Reilly titles erlang programming and designing for scalability with erlang otp and yeah i'm responsible for delivery at erlang solutions these days help a lot with kind of recruitment and overseeing uh, the various projects in my spare time i teach at oxford university at a concurrency oriented programming course
0: nice it's like
1: qu- quite a cv you got Francesco. <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge when you try to drop it down to one page but yeah it, <laughs> I think it's
0: for me at least. It would be interesting to hear, like, how did you end up getting into all of this? Like, well, what's like your, your story there? Where you like, where did you start off, beginning so, this, this impressive journey?
1: So it was in university. I um, it was, I think, at the time it was called. This was before concurrency. I think uh, concurrent programming. The term was coined in 2002, but in 1994 the lecturer came in and he pulled out the first version of concurrent programming in Erlang, which he kind of waved to the class and said, this is the book, read it. He waved some exercises, you know, do them. And then off he went and, and started lecturing about the horrors of parallel programming. And doing the exercises, we never, I, I, I ne- you know, none of those horrors he was describing actually materialized. You know, he was talking about deadlocks, race conditions, mutexes, you know, corrupt memory. But, you know, we were using Airline for a simulation uh, where we had wolves uh, roaming a virtual world. We had, and they were hunting rabbits. These rabbits were hunting carrots. And if a wolf saw a rabbit, he'd broadcast it to other wolves within a certain radius and they'd start chasing the rabbit. and the rabbit would cry wolf to 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 other rabbits within a certain radius. And the same applied to if a rabbit you know, found a carrot patch, hey, there's food here. And if wolves didn't eat enough rabbits, they'd run out of energy and die. If wolves ate a lot of rabbits, they'd get fat and split in two. and And the same applies to rabbits, if the rabbits That's ate a lot works. of them, Guess, yeah, very yeah, very few. Very yeah, and if a rabbit yeah ate a lot of carrots, yeah, Sanju would go up and it would split into into two rabbits. And the goal was to create to create a balanced world. And it was great. You know, I mean, Erlang was one of the many languages you know we we got introduced to. But until a few months later, when well, we had to do exactly the same exercise in APL, and the Erlang exercise had taken me about forty hours to to, to complete APL version. AFIL was a is is an object oriented programming language invented by Bertrand mayor introduced some very interesting concepts around preconditions and contracts basically but it was being pitched as a language of simulations And despite that, it ended up, despite that, and despite the fact that they tried something very novel at the time, which was called pair programming. So they paired us up, and two of us worked together on a solution. Despite having already solved the solution and reusing a lot of the ideas, it ended up taking two of us 60 hours to solve exactly the same problem. So three times the original time. And at that point, that's when it kind of tweaks, saying, well, I tweak on two things. A, using the right tool for the job, I think, Mm -hmm. is critical, and the right tool at hand is usually not... It's not necessarily the tool which is being pitched as the right tool for the job. And and second, you know, I think there are a lot of features in Erlang which made me realize that, you know, which made me realize, you know, this is the future. It might not be Erlang, but I think it's gonna be a lot of there are going to be a lot of ideas and concepts which will be taken from Erlang and put into future programming languages. So this is where, you know, I picked up the phone, I cold called, called Joe Armstrong, the co inventor of Erlang. At the time no one knew it was Ericsson Switch put me through to him. And we clicked two weeks later I was down for an interview and got the internship. So, you know, this is how it all started. That's really cool. I just,
0: just especially imagining you're just picking up the phone and calling Joe <laughs> different times then,
1: I guess. He's always been approachable. And, uh, you know, you go out and find, you know, emails. He's always answered people mm-hmm. emails. He's always helped and he's always taken the time. So it was no different then than, you know, what it was uh, until a few years ago, until he passed away.
0: Me, myself, I came so late into the uh, Beam community that I only saw... Joe once on the uh, coat beam in Stockholm and it was already at that point like oh my god that's Joe Armstrong <laughs> so yeah like I said different times I guess at least for me it, it,
1: it was interesting walking with him around the streets of San Francisco or go- going going you know to museums with him where people would recognize they'd come up to him oh you Joe Armstrong you know and they'd recognize him which is something I don't think he ever he liked enjoyed but never really got used to you know because he was never expecting anything like that before
0: we hit the record button you, you kind of hinted that like that the company, right? Like your your company that you kind of grew. Quite a lot over the pandemic. And I think for a lot of people working in like Rufa Beam, Elixir, Erlang, whatever, right? Building a company or like being involved in building a company is, is something they don't have a lot of experience with. So maybe you can, can give a bit of like insight, like how you ended up being there, right? And, and what, what what you kind of like, how, how you build bridge this gap between like having this technical background, but
1: still being involved in all of this business side of things, you know? It's a really good question, Sasha. And it's not the- the first time it's, I've been asked that question so, I mean, I have a master's in computer science. I know nothing about running a company, but there was one thing which I built a company around, which is the passion. And, and it's a passion for Airline, which eventually became the passion for the whole Erlang ecosystem, which includes the Beam. It includes Elixir. It includes LFE and, and probably 35 other languages which are today running on the Beam, I think of which probably five or six are being used in production. But what ended up happening was, after probably four or five years uh, you know, of having lived, in, you know, of having worked for Ericsson in, in Stockholm, I kind of felt it's time to move on. It's time not move on job-wise, but move on country-wise. And I've been for a long time looking for new opportunities abroad. And I had I had an opportunity to move to London. Didn't have a job, but at the time you it was still you, know, you had the freedom of movement, so you could easily move amongst countries. And you know, and my thought was, you know, let's move to London, take some time off. I'd never taken any time off between university and work. I basically moved to London and started looking for a place to live. And within two days of having moved to London, Mike's girlfriend was getting calls, voicemails. Hey, uh, we're looking for Francesco. Wow. Can you please call us? And it was basically the first customer who had heard I'd left Ericsson and was looking for help with Round Erlang. And within two weeks, within three weeks, I had three customers who needed who needed consultancy services and a permanent job offer. And this was at the time where you could count the users of Erlang on, on the fingers of both hands. You know, so there were maybe 10 commercial users of Erlang. The year was in 1999 was a year after it had been released as open source. So this is how it happened. And we kept on kind of expanding. So, well, apart from the IT crash, which happened in in 2000, 2001, so the dot-com bubble, 2003 ended up hitting the ground running, got into T-Mobile and started working with them. I got customers in South Africa. I got customers, got, got multiple Ericsson customers, started taking on subcontractors. 2004, started taking on interns. And in 2005, a business partner who had the business side, you know, knew the business side of things, came on board. We started taking on permanent employees and have kept on expanding ever since. And I think there's a trifle group which owns a good part of Airline Solutions. And they've got a very kind of good, solid approach to managing companies where they basically give the different business units a lot of independence, which means from one side it means you know learning from your mistakes, but on the other hand, it means doing what you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. And the whole goal is trying to keep you know the different officer units small you know between you know, 15 to you know 25 employees because that's where you know this kind of the culture grows and and you know the staff retention is at its best and pretty much you know this is what we've done you know during the pandemic you know we've doubled in size during the pandemic and and there are you know, quite a few contributing factors to it. But you know, one of them is that we work with infrastructure. So we're usually down on heroes. We're the ones who get yelled at when, when when things go wrong and don't work. But which no one talks about when. Um which no one talks about when, when things go well. So, you know, it's not so much, you know, we don't do that much around UI, user interface, and user experience, but we do most of the backend system. So and anything from, you know, kind of RabbitMQ, you know, MQT to, you know, to proper kind of microservices backend architectures, you know, payment systems, you know. So when the whole world went online in 2020, these systems which, and started doing all of the shopping online, those were the systems which were under strain, and those were the systems we used and, and worked with. So, uh, it's so a lot of work started coming in. Um, the second thing which happened, and that happened actually in August of 2020, we made the conscious decision of becoming, continuing becoming being a remote company, even after the pandemic. Prior to that year, you know, we had offices in London, in Stockholm, Budapest, and Krakow. Well, you know, we also had an America's team who was fully remote and had been fully remote for quite a while, and we took all of the lessons learned of running a remote team in the Americas, and this was a team you know, spread across uh, North, Central, and South America, and applied them to, you know, to the rest of the company. And the management team sat in and took the decision. You know, uh, you know, the question asked was after the pandemic, when the, you know when things get back to to our new normal. Do we still want to work, you know, keep on being remote? Or do we want to, you know, go back to the offices? And it was pretty much a unanimous vote among all of the business unit leads, uh, which was, uh, was, let's stay remote. And that's when we started drawing up guidelines and and basically preparing for this shift. And we still have offices in these cities, but you know they're a fraction of the size of what they used to be, and and what this has done is it has in, increased the talent pool drastically. We we already knew that from you know running the Americas team, which is I think the most successful unit right now, which has expanded the fastest, but with the largest staff retention and so we knew that but it's the biggest challenge is kind of changing people's mindsets and approaches and so you know we, we went in we got all of the lessons learned from that team and we put in place guidelines which had different business unit leads were then allowed to, to decide on what to pick and choose from And and it was basically a collection of experiences which we did so Not only that, but you know what? This also another thing which was happening was that we were noticing that we were employing a lot more women during the pandemic, and it was really helping with the diversity. And not quite thinking what it was, but then quickly came to realize that it was all had to do with remote working, with kind of the live-work balance and the quality of life remote working brings to us. And that applied not only to kind of a diverse group of engineers, but it's so ethnically diverse, diversity in terms of where the people actually live and also gender diversity but also uh, talent diversity so uh, so much talent which you know the remote working opened up to which helped us you know recruit uh, our biggest challenge to growing was recruitment and finding the right people the right mindset so that worked and then there's one third thing which w- which happened which was of those who who really kind of embraced the pandemic and realized that working from home was was something great was our CEO and he decided you know to find he was commuting twice a week, uh, three hour commute in each direction, and it was insane, absolutely insane. And he felt it's time for me to step down. Uh, you know manage to bring the company to where it is. Uh, he'd done a fantastic job. his name is Stuart Whitfield, but he'd managed to get a job you know closer to home with a much smaller company, which would allow him to be closer to his family and not have to travel as much. And you know together with yourn Larson, who's the head of uh, Triford, he said, okay, let's replace one CEO with seven CEOs. And every business unit head basically got given the independence and the responsibility. It took it took a while. It took a while, but they got given free reigns you know, to take on and much less top steering to, to to take on and start building the different business units and start expanding them. And that has had an amazing impact on staff retention, but also on growing and expanding. And, and as you say, you're doubling in size. You know, I mean, for a company... To, you know, to go from five employees to 10 employees is really easy. From 10 to 20 is also easy. From 20 to 40 becomes harder. And what we learned is going from 40 to 80 was really, really hard. <laughs> and what what happened during the pandemic is we went from around 100 to 200. I think we hit you know, inclusive subcontractors. We passed the 200 mark uh, last year. And this is, this is employees and subcontractors. But if you give people independence, going from 10 people to 20 people is easy and that's what most business units did and that's how we managed to double in size uh, you know we spun off you know, two new business units as a result the, the london team uh, became the, the, the london dolphins we spun them off from head office and the rabbit mq team which is another team which is doing really really well which is focusing on on basically not just rabbit mq but messaging in general so yeah so this is what happened during the pandemic so i mean people say you know, there are a lot of Negative things which happen, indeed. But I think what I say, what I keep on saying is embrace the positives, embrace the things which will stay with us, the good things which will with us even after. And you know, I can describe the scenario when I I was on the management board when we took the decision to remain to remain distributed even after the pandemic and remote, allow remote working after the pandemic. And I was by the beach on a lake, the largest lake in central Italy. I just picked up my children from summer camp, uh, that daily summer camp. And so yeah, I think yeah, during the pandemic, everyone struggled with childcare, but it's we managed to get them into a camp, and they were playing in a playground. I was under a tree in the shadow, on my phone, on this management call. This is where I took that call, and that's where we all jointly took the decision. And I think it's that quality of life, which is yeah, I think impacted everyone so much, allowing them to keep on doing what to do best. And one final thing, and then I promise, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, let you take over, is the fact that our customers realised that we we are just as capable of delivering remotely as as we are delivering in person and you know customers being oxford university who are allowed you know we're very against the remote courses it took them a while to get used to it you know they're allowing it customers so but not just when it comes to training but also when it comes to building systems and delivering systems you know if you've got the communication in place you've got the infrastructure in place they realize that you can be as productive or more productive that way i mean From my end, you know, the pandemic allowed me to do much more of what I love doing, which is uh, teaching. Uh, You know, previously I uh, maybe had the bandwidth to teach two courses and one or two tutorials a year. This uh, this went up to four or five courses a year and you know four or five six tutorials, which I can only do remotely because you know traveling was you know was taking just too much time and being away from the family was not working for me. So yeah, so this is what happened. And it's just been an amazing experience. And a side effect, staff retention has been, yeah, you know, has really has been really, really high. We've never seen such high numbers in the history of um of the company.
0: And just just to say, Francesco, I, I think everybody enjoys you talking so long. At least I did. So <laughs> no worries about that. Wow! First of all, thank you for sharing this and giving that insight. I'm, there are a few things I would, I would like to be asking, but I also want, of course, Adi and Alan, if you have any questions, just jump just right in. Um, like one thing I found very interesting where you just said that like customers, when customers realize that you working remotely work just as well, maybe not even better as before. Is this something where you've also observed like an an impact on their culture? Because I definitely, I think we've seen, especially in our industry, how the pandemic kind of supercharged the whole movement towards remote work. Let's say that. Um, but there are still industries out there which which are hesitant to to move into that direction so i'm wondering if if basically rolling solutions your company being like a picture book example of how it can work if that has had also a positive impact for some some of your customers maybe embracing this model of
1: work more does this question make sense it does i don't know if i have an answer because every every company is different every person is different and indeed you know i think a lot of And and not only every office, every business unit we we have is different. So it's really hard to answer. But i mean from our end initially i mean they were forced to embrace this way of working Mm -hmm. and in many cases yeah we actually went in and helped them helped them understand how they could do it because we had experience at least from the america's team we had a lot of experience in doing so and and it's very simple you know i mean very simple rules of putting in place the communication making sure that the face-to-face meetings happen and then you know, making sure that you can show that you are productive and, and that you're available and productive when you need to be there. So, you know, it's, I'd like to hope we, we have helped customers who are struggling in that transition. But, you know, I think, you know, every company, every business unit we have with Solutions is different and we really kind of value the culture and mm-hmm respect the way they want to do things and as an example budapest and uh, stockholm have one day a week where they work from the office in other offices you sign in and say you want to go in and work uh, remotely i you know from my end i ended up leaving london after 20 over 20 years and moved to rome and now you know and i fly into the different offices and and uh, meet people and work work there you know, for a couple of days each month, you know, to, to interact with people. So, yeah, but the rest of the time, yeah, I, I'm working from Rome, I'm working remotely now.
2: Yeah, but if you have so many people working remotely, do you, you don't fly to their homes and knock on their door and say, I'm, I'm here to work with you for the afternoon, or something like that, right?
1: It has happened, it has happened, where, you know, I happen to be driving across Europe or staying somewhere, knowing that, that an employee is a 20 minute drive away. Hey, do you wanna, do you wanna work, you know, together? Oh yeah, sure, and, and we, we so we've done it, or we've just met for lunch. So, you know, and this is very, very important. Not only, I think, uh, company get-togethers or or kind of business unit get-togethers and project get-togethers are just as important. People need to meet in person and they need to interact and get to know each other on a personal level, which is, you know, kind of goes beyond, you know, meeting on Zoom and socializing on, on, you know, virtually. And for that, yeah, we have, you know, project get-togethers where the project meets regularly in person. We have, you know, business units meet at least, you know, three, four times a year where everyone within that organization uh, goes in and meets together. And we've got conferences. You know, we run all the code beam and Elixir you conferences. And that's another opportunity, which all our staff take, you know, to go in and not only meet the community and meet the speakers and, and meet their friends, but also meet their colleagues and get to know them better.
0: Yeah, I can also definitely plus one, do plus one on that, where since I've been working remotely for like uh, quite a while, basically with the beginning of a pandemic, just by the nature of my previous employer, which was very medical focused. So we were immediately like, okay, everybody works from home now. That That's like the number one thing I sometimes feel feel I'm missing and also colleagues are missing, like actually meeting people in person, like just these, these, these coffee machine chats, which tend to happen, or like you, you go out for lunch and just and maybe sometimes talk about work, but sometimes also not, just sometimes talk about life. And from my experience, that's also the, the the hardest thing to reproduce to a certain degree, like having this kind of informal check-ins and also getting to know the people behind the work.
1: Especially the new joiners uh, yeah. who, who weren't there before the pandemic. So we try to cater with that to some degree with kind of virtual get-togethers. So you know, every you know, we've got tech talks. Uh, different offices have their own internal tech talks, but then company-wide, you know, we've got the dojos every Friday. We've got virtual coffees. So uh, and everyone from any office is welcome to join. Any other office is virtual. So people will pop in and you know, meet colleagues from other countries. We've got employees who go in and work from other offices. So you're the kind of digital nomads who will go in and work from Krakow or from from Stockholm or or London office as and when they feel like it as well. So, but I agree with you. I mean, it's indeed in the Americas you we call it the water cooler chat, the virtual meeting, meeting, because that's what it is, and you can talk about anything except for work. Yeah, that's the rule, at least in for the Americas team.
3: I'm actually still a little baffled by the numbers. <laughs> as we we're talking, Francesco, I was like just looking up Crunchbase numbers for Erlang Solutions, and it's very, it's pretty crazy that you are able to hit this kind of revenue while just being in such a specific tech. It, I mean, it's—I don't think I know of any other consultancy who has hit that. And as an aspiring entrepreneur who wants to eventually work in ideally elixir or at least like Beam, I'm trying to see. There must be a A lot of reasons why you hit that and you gave a lot a lot of that initial part of the story Uh, i would love to if you would kind of give some strategic choices you made later on that allowed you to do this i see that you got acquired by trifork who also looks like has invested in like some of the other like humio i see here basho so like Maybe how did that acquisition help you get there? I would love to get some more uh, insights over there.
1: So, so yeah, going back to what you were saying, I think when we were around 25 and aspiring you know, to become 50, so, I mean, this aspiration was, I actually stopped counting employees, by the way, when I couldn't fit them on, my, on the fingers of my hand. So beyond 10, I, I never. I, I stopped keeping track on that, how many we were because I think it was just a number at the end of the day. What was important, yeah, but, but, but when we were around 25, one of my employees who uh, yeah, told me, oh, you're too large for a kind of niche you know, consultancy company. You know, 15 is the right number and you shouldn't grow beyond that because yeah, you won't be able to grow beyond that. And, yeah, I think it's and my answer was, why not? I, you know, there's not enough business. Well, prove me wrong. <laughs> and what is to where we are today is passion. It's a passion for what we do. It's the belief, you know, that we're working with a you know, superior technology, which you know, for certain problems is the right tool for the job. And yeah, I think, you know, we've done a lot of mistakes along the way, but I think a lot of these mistakes have been addressed and fixed. I think one of my favorite examples, which I always give, which was fixed graciously by Jose Valin, was, you know, for example, trying to get Erlang into the web development space. And we were doing it with our computer science hats on you know we had you know back in early 2000 we had the fastest web servers yours yet another web server which is still out there and and still being used in anger was probably three or four times more performant and more reliable than apache you know we you know, we, we we have you know the benchmarks for it back then where apache you know, couldn't go beyond 8,000, you know, simultaneous TCPIP connections. Yours was handling 70, 80,000 with a sustained throughput until, until you hit memory limits on the beam. And we know this today. You know, back then, they didn't believe us. And we, we gave the numbers. We didn't believe, you know, they, they still wouldn't believe us. And we were trying to push, you know, airline in the web space, but we were doing it with our computer science hats on. And where I really love you know, what Jose Valin has done is he put his web developer hat on and you know, said around to, to, to creating Elixir. You know, but the purpose uh, you, you know, of, of inventing Elixir, if you ask him, was you know, I wanted to bring the power of Erlang to other communities. And so understanding how these other communities think and reason, he created you know, a programming language which you know, would be you know, had the frameworks needed for web development. Had the tools needed for web development, you know, people kept on saying, "Oh, Erlang tools are rusty." Yes, they are rusty. If you want to do web development, and if if you're coming in with a certain level of skill sets, they weren't rusty for what the problems we were solving, which were problems within the enterprise where your enterprise came in and dictated you need to use this tool, this tool, and that tool. So there's no point in using, you know, having mix and hex when. Uh, we basically got told, you can't use them. You can't use them uh, because you need to use what we, we, we tell you to use. And so you know, I think you know, the, the word I'm looking for is approachable. He made Airline approachable to initially a wide set of community, to, to the huge community of, of web developers who didn't have and, and didn't want to have a computer science degree because those were not the skills you need when you're doing web development. You know, You need to have user empathy, user design, user experience yeah and and know how to design user interfaces. And you know, we we in the airline community didn't know how to design a user interface if our life depended on it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and I think you know, in many cases that's still the case. but you know that's where I keep on saying you know, the airline community and the election community have a lot to learn from each other. And together, you know they're stronger because it's different use cases where where different technologies are being used. And then from you, know, you know, web, I think a lot of great work in the embedded space with nerves. Mm. and and I think in the embedded space, I think we understood how embedded developers fought and reasoned. And and that is the reason why yeah, I think Erlang never got well, Erlang was being used in embedded for telecoms. Like telecoms isn't embedded, is embedded. It's all about embedded. So it was being used there on a large scale. But when processors started getting, you know, much more powerful, when Raspberry Pis came along, you know, we, we struggled to get get it to become the language of choice because you know, people still have, yeah, you know, because of the mindset in in the embedded community, in the hardcore embedded community, where you know, they won't really move away from C because they, they're still thinking in terms of hardware constraints, we're not realizing that hardware constraints aren't an issue anymore, and that we're, we're working on multi-core architectures, and not only multi-core architectures, but architectures with a wide, you know, diversity, different set of cores, and yeah, you know, we saw that. Yeah, and that, that was even visible when the Parallela board came about. You know, you could have a sixty-four core coprocessor on the Parallela board about six, seven years ago. And people went in on Kickstarter, they funded it, and then they got the board at home and says, Oh, this is great. What do I do with it now? How do I program it? And so, you know, that never really took off, even though, you know, it was an amazing piece of of hardware technology and and so you know so so for for, for you know for embedded I think you know, I think the challenge there was not so much that we were saying the wrong things we we're saying the right things but that the mindset was very very kind of narrow and yeah you know, and I think yeah you know, and you ask Frank you know what his major challenges are and he will tell you the same he'll tell you exactly the same you know but I think good news is I think a lot of the work we did uh back then you know it was used by Frank in nerves uh, so we had a project called Erlang embedded and he took that project and then he built an Elixir wrap around it and eventually rewrote it to Elixir. So um, that, that was you know, that was good. Yeah, and it's good to see that work, you know, living on it. And now, yeah, machine learning. Again, it's another area which uh, I think we'll be hearing a lot about, which makes me really, really excited. What makes me even more excited, I think, is the intersection between machine learning and embedded, where you know, we'll be able to deploy, I think, uh, a lot of the machine learning algorithms and instances on the edge and on the devices themselves i don't know if i answered that question or if I went off in a tangent but but the, the answer you know is passion you need to be passionate about what you do and right. everything else will follow
3: awesome and like you mentioned like elixir's inception was also the right time and that helped you as well um uh, did the
1: acquisition
3: help at all or uh did that change the dynamics or in what ways did it?
1: No, it didn't. It, it didn't. I don't think it changed the dynamics other than because Trifork expands by letting companies get on with it. They go in, they acquire companies, they let them get on with it. And not really, you know, they, they have a lot of experience and there's a lot of experiences exchanged among business unit leaders but going in and top steering 63 companies as is the case right now with, with, with the ceo of trifor is impossible and it will never work it would never work because you can't do that it's just too much so by finding the right people to run these companies or helping grow the right people it is their approach and, and i think that's the best contribution which uh, which they've made as i said earlier replacing one ceo with with seven or eight with seven you know, right now seven ceos that that is awesome. you know and helping these seven people grow and take the responsibility i think that's really been one of the best contributions which i would have never thought of myself but, but, which which i recommend anyone you know anyone to do you know give them independence and let them you know learn from their own mistakes and and uh, and grow themselves because that will also mean they'll take responsibility
2: that makes sense yeah, I did want to kind of come back to to this. It's, it's actually kind of interesting to hear that you the I don't know if it's necessarily you, but what you guys are working on with the web development, right? How you approach this from two different angles and saw which one actually worked. It. So you came in there and said, "Okay, you know, we have the fastest, we have the best piece of technology out here. We worked really hard on this; it works great. Well, here's the stats, but that didn't matter, right?" Uh, what, what, what year was that? Because I'm kind of curious about what year that was. Do you know?
1: A search the Apache versus yours blog post Joe Armstrong wrote, where what he did is he went in and got benchmarks on a dual core machine for Apache and yours. And there's a huge thread on the mailing list, a lot of debates around it. And in some cases, it was pretty hard to reproduce. Joe Armstrong was very much of an innovator, but he wasn't very scientific or precise in how he did things. So some people, you know, failed at, at kind of reproducing these and, and you know, were more loud about their failures than uh, instead of trying to get it right. And um so it was around 2002. We were working on the Erlang web in 2007, 2008, probably. And what Erlang web did was we had what we call the Lime stack, the Linux, uh, the Yours web server, the Mnesia database, and Erlang, where Erlang was the glue. And the reason we were the fastest is that we had everything running in the same uh, memory space. The web server would receive the HTTP request. So yeah, the, the, the expensive part was parsing the HTTP request, which again, it's a small string. It's not that expensive. We had the concurrency, which would allow us to you know have hundreds of thousands of, of, of requests being managed. At the time, I think on, on a dual-core machine, well, this was before multi-core, but mid, the high-range desktop, you could probably get around 80,000 TCPIP connections, 80,000 to 100,000 TCPIP connections. So we, we could have 100,000 users managing it. And in parallel with that, everything was running in the same memory space. So you get your HTTP request. There was no IO to databases. There was no IO to go in and to with your scripts. So it was all Erlang. So it would take Microseconds to look up database data, amnesia, and glue everything together and send back the responses. So actually, you know, generating dynamic web pages every time you know you had a request was cheaper than serving static ones.
2: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. But what I think was interesting is that yeah, raw, raw benchmarks are are cool and, and interesting, and, and of course, the work you guys put in there is super useful. And I wish I heard about LimeStack before. But kind of coming back to this whole thing, it's. I think people have kind of come to the stage where it's like, well, what's easier, right? I think, like you said, Elixir came in, they brought in a lot of kind of easy-to-use developer tools compared to what you guys had. What you had was raw, like engineering, okay, this thing could really run, but you had to get up to speed with all that. Whereas Elixir, they kind of made things easier, right? And I think that kind of made you guys think... You may Absolutely. just think it a different way, right? You're like, we approach this from the wrong direction to a certain extent, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think you know, if you look at the early comparisons between Erlang and Elixir for web development, it took someone a day you know, to get everything up and running you know, to be able to serve a web page versus you know, going down the Phoenix route. It would take you an hour. And so from a psychological point of view, that was, that was, yeah, that was, did it all. And the tools we had were very different to what the tools web developers used to using. Because again, it, we weren't doing web development. We had no idea what tools web developers needed, and so yeah, you know, we'd use the tools we knew. So I agreed. It's as you say, web development is not about programming. It's not you know which we thought it was. It's 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 about productivity. It's about top-down development. We used to do bottom-up development. Because, and we still do bottom up development because you know, we try to solve the hard problems first. If we fail solving the hard problems, there's no point in going ahead with the project because the project's going to fail. There's no point in having a pretty UI if, if it doesn't do, if it doesn't solve you know, the problems you're trying to solve. So that's how we did it. We did bottom up and then whenever all the hard parts worked, we'd glue them together, we'd integrate them and it worked versus you know, web development. It's top down. You need to see what it is you're developing. You need to see it straight away.
0: To summarize, you could just say, which I think is applicable to a whole bunch of areas, know your audience, right? Know your audience and, and understand what is actually the problem they're trying to solve.
1: Correct. and And absolutely, absolutely. And then we didn't know the audience because those weren't the problems, you know, we were trained to solve. So And Jose solved that problem for us, which we're really, really grateful for. And I think that the whole community is grateful for it as well.
3: I think the timing also helped Jose, right? Like I imagine Elixir and Phoenix pre something like Rails would have been a lot different and a lot less accessible. Mm. So like compared to then 2, when you guys were trying to solve it, it, it was a lot less clear What does the web development community want compared to 2013, 2014 when Elixir came out? It was a lot more obvious that this is the type of template that you can follow that will lead to adoption in the web development community. I cannot take any credit away from Jose, but it just was easier to do that post-Rails than Rails.
1: Absolutely. But I think what's also important is to have ideas and be able to implement and make sure that they work. And I'm convinced uh, Jose would have been able to do that even if Rails had not been around, even though... It's, uh, yeah, I think Rails was brilliant uh, for its time when it came out. Where it failed at was kind of modernizing itself and reinventing itself. And so it's, if you know, Phoenix and Elixir had come out pre Rails, it's, I think what would have been important is that it would have been you know, able to keep on modernizing itself and staying on top of you know, an ever changing landscape. Which is, you know, pretty much what we, yeah, we're in the tech space. Everything we do keeps on changing. Uh, yeah, maybe not on a daily basis, but on a monthly and yearly basis, you know, things which which uh, which happen, uh, things which are relevant, you know, today will not be relevant in a few weeks, you know, a few months time. So it's, uh, yeah, I keep reminding my students. You're in university not to learn something, but you're here to learn how to learn because you know, what we teach you will be relevant by the time you graduate. And the same you know, same applies to, to any text that we might be using. Except we need to be able for to SQL.
0: That thing is never going to die. <laughs> Which is fine by me. I like SQL, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I actually would like to point something out um, because I think I noticed like an interesting little parallel. Now, I mean, Adi, you you point you asked about like you trying also as an entrepreneur, right? Like, started trying to start up a business. Now we talked about Jaws and Apache and like how to, how to know your audience. And I'm currently at my an employer, which is completely unrelated to Elixir, but we are in the process of like. Setting up and, and like starting the, the the implementation of a new product, like a completely new product, and that is currently in the phase of like where we have a whole bunch of people doing like kind of like market research and air course, right? but like doing user interviews and like building up personas and figuring out like w- what kind of value proposition do we actually want to build for these people, like what kind of problems do we want to solve and what kind of needs do we want to address, and it's exactly the same here, like whether or not. You actually have something where you build an app for, I don't know, delivering food to your doorstep, right? Or whether you actually build like some new technology to help with web development, there's still always going to be a certain audience you have in mind, a certain value proposition, a certain need you're trying to address. And unless you get that right, yeah, nothing else matters. (laughs) If you don't get that right, then you're basically already doomed to fail
1: or at least doomed to reinvent yourself before being successful i completely agree and to to add to what you're saying i mean technology comes second it's important technology shows are really really important but it's the end product which is critical and then how you implement it there's no point in having the fastest most amazing product if you've got no users on it and that that's one of the lessons we've learned as well
0: i mean it can be one of your superpowers so to speak right like one of the things which which make it easier for you to to innovate maybe in the space you're 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 you know, trying to to develop and build your product around but at the end of the day i think you just have to look at like a, a company like github which everything is still running on Rails. It's, like it's a gigantic Rails app, and it's working. I mean, like they are successful at what they're doing. Maybe there would have been a different technology to build that GitHub on, and maybe wow. that would have been more successful, but who knows?
1: Well, there was a lot of Erlang in there in the early days. I don't oh, know if you're okay. aware okay, I didn't know. Wow. <laughs> so, so Erlang was the actual glue which allowed GitHub to scale in its early days. It was Tom wow. Preston Warner. If you Google it, it should be. The, yeah, there are quite a few links and references to it but you know Tom Preston Warner used Erlang to you know, basically glue together all of Israel all of these rail instances and so as they became immensely popular that's why they never had you know scaling issues you know there's not i don't think there's any Erlang well, there is Erlang today in, in, in the form of RabbitMQ, but I don't think there's any Erlang you know, remaining in the backbone because uh, of your maintainability problems. I think a lot of that got rewritten, I believe, in, in Ruby you know, later on. But I in the early days...
0: Know. You know, I actually didn't know. Yeah. Wow. Fun little example. I, I picked you then.
1: <laughs> as I said, you know, Erlang is absolutely everywhere, but people and, and, and Alex here as well for that matter, but people don't realize it until things start going wrong.
0: So, Ellen, I think there's still this one question you wanted to ask from the beginning. <laughs> Ellen, this is one question I think you wanted to ask from the beginning.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, I don't maybe
0: know. that was the time.
2: Yeah, maybe. Is there any interesting stories where you did an upgrade somewhere and something weird happened? I don't know. I don't want to say too much. I'm trying to let this come out naturally because it's, I'm sure there must be some good story.
1: <laughs> many, many, many. So, I, I, so I, 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 oh, software upgrades during runtime are incredibly powerful, and yeah, they've helped uh, reduce the cost. You know, when you're shipping a product, and you know, you save millions of dollars for every dollar in hardware cost. You, you're able to save, but your product may never go down software upgrade you know, in runtime is, is, is critical. But I think you're thinking of the XD301 switch right here. Is that right?
2: Something about dust somewhere, right? I'm trying not to get away the, yes. the
1: end. Yes. It wasn't me, but they're friends of mine. It was a product Yeah, I was very much involved in, but there was an XD301 switch in a country far, far away, in a country far, far away, which was handling all of the international traffic for a very large telco in a very big city. And they'd put in that switch, and for years, for literally three years, it kept on running without any incidents, without the need to, being, without the need to reboot it. So we're talking late 90s, early two, 2000s here, uh, early 2000s here, so 20, 20 years ago. We're talking about 20 years ago here, where you know not rebooting a machine yet 20 years ago for three years was you know, pretty much unheard of because there are always issues, memory leaks and so on. But yeah, you know, the sd had been running for three years without any problems and you know, switching away, you know, doing what it does best. And after three years, Ericsson went to this customer and said, Hey, you know, you need to upgrade because you need to upgrade your system because you know we're not gonna support the version you're on anymore. And so they and it was tricky trees because they needed to, to to upgrade it for free versions. There's a new version which was at the time being released uh, every year. So what they agreed on is, yeah, there'd be no outages or no issues. We could allow, we could allow the system to reboot. Uh, we instead of doing a live upgrade, which would have meant you're know, doing free live upgrades, and, yeah, and they're tricky and they're dangerous. What we'll do is, yeah, you know, we will, yeah, you know, we will create some scripts, migrate the data and the state, and reboot, reboot uh, the nodes. And yeah, you know, you know, all, all the Xe3 ones had dual pair, you know, an active standby node. And so they went in and you ran all the scripts we were in the lab, they tested, everything worked. And so around come midnight, when you're the traffic, and, and in this case, international calls were at its lowest, they went in, ran all the scripts, and rebooted one node. And, and this node wouldn't upgrade. It, it, so it wouldn't start, it wouldn't restart. And so panic hit in, you know, they couldn't even get access to the terminal, the disks just, yeah, nothing was working. And no one knew what was wrong. So they, they panicked and ran the scripts on the standby node, which had become active, and tried to renew it and tried to upgrade it. And even there, nothing worked. The same thing happened. The system completely you know ground to a halt and crashed, and they couldn't reboot the computers anymore. And so panic. First line support called. Second line support, which get you know third line support out of bed. No one knew how to restart the switches. Uh, It was a country far, far away, so they had no spares. They flew in an engineer immediately, who couldn't get the systems up and running. And so eventually, um, a friend of mine, a colleague, ended up, you know, uh, you know, FedExing extra switches. Wouldn't have worked because it wouldn't have worked because they would have got stuck in customs. And at this point, I think it was the CEO of this big telco was you know, speaking to Ericsson CEO and escalated to that level and this outage lasted a week a friend of mine ended up smuggling two extra boards in his, in his rain jacket in his raincoat <laughs> uh, in, in, wow. in, into this country far far away so ensuring that you know, they wouldn't be caught in customs going in you know, putting them on and, and getting the system up and running again and they you know and, and it needs you know new hardware for everything you know, started running without any issues and obviously, big post-mortem, that been for one week, you know, customers couldn't do international calls in in, in, a, in this big city, in, in this big country far, far away. So a huge post-mortem to, to get down to what the issue was. Now, these were Solaris machines which were running. And Solaris machines, what makes Solaris machines? You know, Solaris machines, you know, back in the days had the boot sector. Of on the external kind of parts of the hard drive. So for three years, what they discovered is that the hard, the the head of the hard disk, these mechanical disks, which means that I was moving backwards and forwards, but never touching the external, the the external parts of the disk. So over three years, a very thin layer of dust had settled on these on the boot sector because it was never read. They didn't have to read it because they weren't rebooting these machines. And so, you know, three years on after, when they decided to go in and reboot the hard drives, the head basically got stuck. These are hermetically sealed disks. So, you know, you you can imagine that the the head just got stuck on this very thin layer of dust and uh, wouldn't restart as a result of it. So, you know, once they figured out what the issue was, every HD for 1 switch at midnight started doing hard drive, mechanical hard drive gymnastics where you know, the head would go across and start spreading any dust which was settling on the boot sectors across the whole drive. And yeah, and this kept on going. <laughs> on. So you know, it, it kind of reminds you that you know, failure is not always in the software and always be prepared for the unexpected. But like, seriously, you
0: know, how do you prepare
1: for something like this? <laughs> <laughs> you make sure you've got staff willing to smuggle in extra hardware in yeah, and it's far, far away.
0: <laughs> we, we have <laughs> a smuggler, like on, on, on retention, you're just one call <laughs> away.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, yeah. it's all about no, no single points of failure. You know, yeah, um, I guess that's it. I was giving a guest lecture at AT&T in New Jersey. So the old, um, I think, at AT&T, and, and I was talking about no single points of failure. And someone in the audience pointed out, hey, you know, you know, the Long Lines building on Manhattan. So Google, you know, the Long Lines building. It's, it's, uh, it's the building where AT&T used to have all of its um, switches, all of its switches, uh, phone switches, mechanical switches at the time, which then, became, uh, which then became digital. And, you know, talk about no single points of failure. In the cellar of this building, they've got a tank with enough petrol to fuel the generators for two weeks. So in case there's a blackout on Manhattan, they've got two weeks worth of energy stored in this gas tank, which will allow them to keep on switching calls. And that's how you think when you build telecom systems. And in this particular case, you know, the solution was you know, having a redundant switch or yeah, you know, making mm. sure that you've got at least two of everything. But it's a reminder we tend you know, to go in our comfort zone. And and then yeah when when and things happen when we least expect them to happen and yeah I think that's what software is all about software development is all about
2: that long lines building is mysteriously close to the FBI building have you heard that
1: no but I've heard rumors <laughs> that the NSA has all of their computers in there right now because yeah, yeah you needed large buildings back in the days to house huge bulky switches right now everything is managed by by, by computers. So, uh, and and it's an example of, it's got no windows. It's built to survive an atomic attack, at least at the distance, obviously. And it was the only building post 9-11 in, in the south part of Manhattan, which was still fully functional after the attacks. So, uh, yeah, it might be close to the FBI building, but it yeah, wouldn't surprise me if the NSA have taken over parts of it and have their hardware infrastructure in
2: there. It kind of reminds me of, we have in Hong Kong, we have this HSBC building and there's always this kind of joke. Have you have you been to Hong Kong before or no? Have you seen the skyline?
1: Yes, I have, yeah. yeah.
2: Have you seen the HSBC building? It looks like a bunch of sticks.
1: Mm, not that I recall, not, not okay. off the top of my head, but yeah.
2: There's this building that looks like a bunch of sticks and I heard from my previous employer, uh, he said, oh yeah, they build it like that because they can easily disassemble it and move it to another place in case the PLC invades. I'm like, first of all, they're already here. They're next door, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but it does look like you can like move it apart. It's like Popsicle <laughs> sticks from far away.
0: Yeah, to be, that exactly. sounds like an urban legend. <laughs> of, course it,
2: of course it is, but it looks yeah. like a building made with Popsicle sticks.
0: Yeah, great. Right. So I always like to ask people this question when, when, when they learn something. Francesco, when, when you started out doing all this, when you, when you started out building up this company, and with the things you now know, and you could basically give your past self a bunch
1: of advice. What would that be? <laughs> oh, that's really hard. Get an MBA. And uh, <laughs> seriously, I think I gave a conference talk. I think it's on, it's on YouTube. What they don't teach about running a company when taking your computer science degree. And I gave this talk probably, it was my first keynote. I gave it probably 15 years ago. And you know the amount of things I've learned since then. You know, I think you know, the, the problem with your question, Sasha, is you never stop learning. You absolutely never stop learning. And it's the thing I would probably go back, and you know, if I were able to travel in time and tell myself you know, back then, is you know, Francesco, you know, in you know 2023, you'll still be working with Erlang. But the programming languages today become an ecosystem of languages. You know, and just do what you're passionate about, and just kind of follow your passion because yeah, everything else. From there will follow and and i think that yeah, that was the conclusion of, you know, of, of of the talk i gave you know, 15 years ago i think you'll make mistakes realize what your mistakes are and and you know make sure that you know, you put in place things which you're know, stopping from happening um further down the line and learn you know keep on learning yeah
0: i know it's a provocative question but, mm-hmm. but I, I feel it always brings a little bit of yeah. interesting insight
1: but yeah it's yeah we've done a lot of mistakes but at the same time we got a lot of things right so And I think that's the case of running any business.
0: Okay, folks, Eddie, Alan, any last questions? Is there anything else you would like to add, Francesco, before we move to the fun part of a podcast, the picks? (laughs)
1: Well, no, I'll I'll stick, I'll go straight to the picks, actually, because they're very much related, Sasha, to the question you just asked me. Then then we go to picks right ahead. Indeed, and it's, so one of the things which, which happened, you know, becoming part of the Trifork group is uh, the CEO of Trifork has kind of what he called leadership workshops. When once every three months, four or five different business unit leads. I'm not. I don't lead any business units, so I'm more there as kind of an observer and there to learn. We meet in different parts of, of Europe and you know, have two days where you know we look, we share experiences and we we, we discuss things. And as part of it, you know, until recently. I just gone in and read technical books. They're all the books I was reading. But as part of these these leadership workshops, uh he and, and a lot of others who are on this workshops go in and suggest a lot of other books which are not necessarily related to tech. And there are three books which yeah, I'd like to recommend a lot of people to yeah, I'd recommend everyone to read. First of all, I'd recommend everyone start reading books which are not necessarily focused on technology you know we program and we do a lot of coding but there are a lot of things outside of, of of coding which are are just as important especially when it comes to running a business and you know one of the books which I hadn't prepared you know, before coming on this path but you know speaking about it is a remote office not required by you know jason Fried and De- uh, david heimler hansen book written you know, before the pandemic But which has a lot of really valuable tips about working with remote teams. But also, you know, if you read between the lines, you know, managing customers who don't quite understand how remote working works and helping them and educating them. So this is one of them. Another book which I really enjoyed is a book called Who Moved My Cheese by uh, Dr. Spencer Johnson. And it's a book which talks about two, two mice in a maze who, who get used to you know finding cheese in, in a certain location. And one day, the cheese there is gone. And it's how they interact. And what the book is about is actually about change and how people react to change, but how you should, in fact, be embracing change and adapting it. So it, it's a really, really nice story, but which where, again, you need to read a lot between the lines. And yeah, it teaches you how to go in and change, yeah, it teaches you to, to go in and embrace, basically, change. And then another book which uh, which I really enjoyed recently is uh, The Art of Thinking Clearly, which by uh, Rolf Dobelli. He's got 100 chapters, each just a few pages long. And he goes in and, and basically looks at, you know, explains how the human mind works and, and helps you, you know, make concrete concise decisions. And I think you know, I had a lot of aha moments when, when when reading this book in that it explains things such as nationalism, explains things such as racism, things such as you know, subconscious bias, a lot of things which kind of affect us on a day-to-day basis, which affect us on a day-to-day basis, which we don't even realize why it is affecting us the way, the, the way it is. And yeah, some things you know, you know as well, or you've learned, you know, through time, but you know, that, that that's that's the book yeah, I wish I'd read a long time ago. A lot of really, really interesting knowledge there.
0: Yeah. Thank you for these picks. That's, that's quite an interesting list of things I now have to add to my ever-growing. <laughs> to <read. laughs> okay, um, Adi, what are your picks for this week?
3: Yeah, I mean, coincidentally, I have a few books as well today. So one, keeping the whole startup entrepreneurial theme, um, and I think this book is a lot more relevant in today's world. It's called the One Hundred Dollar Startup. It kind of focuses on more of a ph- philosophical approach to like a side gig ish startup. I mean, it could be a full time too, but it could it could turn into full time. But like, I think what it focuses on like freedom, freedom as a founder, as an entrepreneur, keeping. Uh, you know, your purpose and ethics at the, at, at the center of it, right? I think it's tricky because uh, t- today I advise five startups on the side and they range from, you know, different, yeah, the CEOs and founders are like in an, an entire spectrum of how they operate, right? It's often easy to lose perspective. Like what is the original purpose why you started being an entrepreneur? And I think I like the way book ties that back to, you know, the ethos of what your you being an entrepreneur is. So I highly recommend that. Uh, it also t- talks about taking it easy as a founder, which these days not a lot of founders do. <laughs> so a huge fan of the book, highly recommend it for anyone who's, uh, even think, think of sidekicks, uh, let alone uh, uh, starting a company. Another book that I, now that I'm not in a startup anymore full-time, I have a lot of time. Uh, so on top of sleeping more, I'm also revisiting uh, some of the books that I read when I was a junior engineer. And one of the books is Microservices Architecture, Aligning Principles, Practices, and Culture. Again, it's a tech book overall, but it talks about cultural impacts and organization, communication impacts, and, and ties in you know Conway's Law, DDD, uh, even lean startup methodologies. And like, Again, a philosophical book, right? I read this in twenty sixteen. I had been working for less than a year. <laughs> I did not take much out of it. But now that I read it, I took a lot more out of it. So would that would recommend that book as well. An overall conclusion of like also like revisiting self-reflection, maybe, you know, revisit some of these books and to learn more, get stuff out of it. And, you know, four or five years makes a huge difference. Four or five years of experience. And you know, if it, uh, if you read a book that's like more experience and ph- philosophy-based, even in engineering, if you read it after five years, you'll get a lot more out of it. And, you know, you might even get different conclusions out of it. So also want to pitch that. My video game pick for the day is Forspoken. Not sure if uh, people have been waiting for it. The demo is out. You can It's, it's free. You can play that. Uh, and I think it'll be out on January 24th, but I highly recommend everyone trying out the demo. It's uh, I haven't played much of it, but uh, I've been meaning to play it. This coming out, I'm going to play but the mechanics are really cool. The way character moves is really cool. It's a little Spider-Man-y, in something Spider-Man-y, but better. <laughs> so, again, a very cool game. Uh, highly recommend it. And job picks, right? So I have, uh, now I work at the score and we're hiring a bunch of engineers, so highly recommended company to work if you like Elixir, Pedal Stack, so go ahead and apply to the score. But two of the startups I advise are looking for a founding engineer. Both just uh, are either about to finish around or finish around. I One of the companies I wrote their entire software, the MVP, Elixir. They even use Gleam, and they are in production now. So, if you want to do Elixir, stack, Gleam for your full-time job as a founding engineer, reach out to me. uh, I'll put my email on show notes. But that's it for today.
0: Nice, thank you, Ali. As usual, good variety of picks. And Alan, where's my Rust book? I want my Rust book.
2: Yeah, I I haven't looked at Rust in a while, still. (laughs) Uh, But no, because Francesco is here. I think I picked this one a while back, but I still want to bring it back. Francesco, your book is really useful for me. In fact, I whipped it out. I I read it and then I went to go at a client's office and we had a production issue and I used the, the knowledge immediately to solve the problem. So I was super happy with it. So it was kind of the first time where I actually just read a chapter. It came up in my work to do some tracing. And yeah, it was super great. So this is a great book, uh, called Designing for Scalability with Erlang OTP. Yeah, fantastic pick. I'll just drop the link into here from Amazon. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course I gotta do some brown nosing since you're here. But uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, still, it's a fantastic book. There's a lot of good, useful stuff in here, and uh, still useful if you want to learn how to like, if you want to know how to scale your Elixir apps. I think you can still learn
3: from Erlang.
1: Plus one. I just wanted to say when Addy was talking about his picks, you know, microservices architectures, I kind of kept back and and didn't say anything. But, you know, the last four chapters there are the chapters you need to get you thinking beyond a kind of Phoenix Sector Postgres stack, which is great for probably 95% of the problems we might be solving, but not for the remaining 5%. And it becomes very dangerous when you start you're designing kind of a backend system as you were a Rails app or a Phoenix app. And I think that is what gets you thinking out of the box and thinking differently. It's very generic. So it's, I think, almost timeless. But yeah, it's, it's what you need if, if you're doing a microservices architecture.
0: Uh, since we kind of went immediately to pick Francesco, there's one part we missed. And that is if people want to get in touch with you and have follow up questions, how can they do that?
1: Twitter is a great, way at least when it's well it's still working which it seems to be and i think we can post my twitter handle in here it's uh, francesco c all right okay. i'd love to hear from you yeah and yeah <laughs> also come with your non-technical book recommendations
0: okay then um thank you for for being with us on the show francesco it was a pleasure talking to you
1: thank you for having me really enjoyed it <laughs> sasha do you also. have any
0: thanks yet no i, I wanted to smoothly Go to the end because I don't have any pics this week. Uh. <laughs> but now you're out at me. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was a pleasure having
1: you, Francesco.
0: And I hope you have a great day. And I hope you all listening to this enjoyed the episode.
1: Thanks a million. Take care. See you soon. <laughs> Bye-bye.